Promo Kitchen is a nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. If you're a new listener, the PK Podcast is a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $20 billion promotional products business. My name is Mark Graham, CEO of Common Skew and Right Sleeve, and I'm joined by my good friend and fellow chef, Danny Rosen, president of Brand Fuel Promotions. Danny will be hacking it up today because he's got a bit of a cold, but we're with you in, in, in spirit there, Danny. <laughs> In today's episode, we are going to explore the world from the vantage point of the multi-line rep. Multi-lines have helped establish the sales foundation for this industry, though in recent years, their role has been threatened by shrinking commissions, factory direct sales forces, and the disruption caused by the internet. No conversation about the multi-line sales channel would be complete without today's guest. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Dan Piggott to the show, But let me give you some background on Dan before we get started. Dan began his career in the promotional products industry in 1988 when the industry was still referred to as the advertising specialty industry. And I suppose people were probably faxing their purchase orders to one another and FedExing their artwork as well. He began as a multi-line rep working for an independent agency, which was based in Washington, D.C., and worked a territory from D.C. to Maine. He started his own rep agency, Big East Sales Team, four years later at the age of 29. He built the company into one of the most respected multi-line agencies in the industry. But Dan has actually made a change this past month, and he's moved into an entirely new role. In December, Dan was actually hired as the Director of Sales for Stromberg Brand Umbrella Company, a New York-based promotional product supplier established back in 1942. Dan is currently serving as Vice President of PAPA and is the Volunteer Organization's President-Elect for 2015. Dan, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Mark. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't we start off with a little bit of a background question for those people that want to understand the foundation of the multi-line sales channel. Do you want to give us a synopsis or an overview as to why it is that a supplier would choose to go between a multi-line agency versus a factory direct salesperson? Yeah, I mean, if, if a supplier decides they, they want representation and they're looking at the two different models, I think what you have when you look at multi-line reps is a lower cost model, yep. for sure. And, it, you know, it's not even close, really, when you make those comparisons. It's just that you have a person that's splitting their time, you know, anywhere from five times to five or ten lines, you mm-hmm. know. So uh, you have to take that into consideration. On the flip side, many of the multi-line reps, you know, have what? 10 years, 20 years of experience. So yep. you, have, you, know, you have guys with like sort of an entrepreneurial side to them, yep. and you have this much experience, and they have deep, long-lasting relationships. So that, in combination with a much lower cost, is very, very attractive, particularly to smaller suppliers, smaller to medium-sized suppliers. I mean, and then what happens is some suppliers get to a point where they feel that the level of business in a particular territory justifies the hiring of a factory rep. Uh, In a lot of cases, that does make good sense. So, uh, you know, that's sort of uh, why someone would choose a multi-line over a factory rep. It's it's really a cost difference and a very drastic one at that. So you're mentioning some of the advantages, of course, to going with a multi-line. Are there any disadvantages, Dan, to hiring a multi-line if you're a supplier? 
Well, yes, frankly, you know, you have some suppliers that, well, first of all, you have some suppliers that, that really just don't buy in to the independent rep model uh, mm. for whatever reason. Many times it's that they've had a poor experience with the selections that they've made of independent reps, and it, it just hasn't worked out, and they're, they're kind of jaded to that sort of process. That would be one reason, but you know, the other uh, you know, negatives are you don't have really a lot of control mm. for what the multi-line reps are doing. So they are right. truly independent with a capital I in a lot of cases. And, you know, so you have to sort of roll with that. You have to trust these guys that, you know, you're getting the time, you're getting the space at trade shows. And, and so, you know, some people are a little uneasy with the unknown factor as, yeah. as it relates to the, the multi-line reps. So that, that's sort of one of the, the negative sides of it, I suppose. And then, you know, some people, hey, you know, we know them all. Uh, we know some people like this. They're a little bit more of control freaks or, mm. uh, you know, interested in controlling every aspect of their business. And so you're not going to have that ability with a multi-line rep. They would probably want to opt for factory people in that case. Right, because the multi-line rep, is almost dictating the terms. Is that what you're suggesting in terms of how it is that well, they go to market and represent the line? Or Yeah, well, you're just, you know, you're not getting necessarily call reports from multi-line reps. You know, you're not able to dictate to them, hey, you're going to see these few people. You're going to go here. It's more in terms of their scheduling and who they're seeing and how do they go to market. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. mostly on the multi-line rep as opposed to the factory rep. You can control a lot yeah. more of that. Well, and I also think, and I'm speaking if I put my distributor hat on from the experience that I've seen with Right Sleeve and having known lots of multi-lines, that if you're a small supplier and you've engaged the services of a multi-line in your particular area, you also stand the risk of getting your line dropped when the multi-line's biggest supplier moves into a category that competes with yours, or the biggest supplier is the one that is paying the lion's share of that multi-line's commission, at which point your small little line never gets any airtime in a presentation or a luncheon session. So that, I think, for the tiny suppliers must really struggle with that, unless it's a multi-line that can almost guarantee equal access. Yeah, and it's impossible. It's okay in theory, but in reality, it's impossible to give exact equal time across yeah. the board. So, you know, you do your best, but the truth of the matter is, you know, is that reps like just about anybody else, I'm speaking of multi-line reps, you know, they, they follow the money and where is their best opportunity to earn the dollars and, and even if there's a small supplier that they feel has you know a great niche or a great approach to the market you know they're gonna get some time even if they're not earning those dollars right now as long as the potential dollars are there yeah I think that most suppliers are comfortable with this idea of not having control because look at who they sell their products through on a day-to-day -day basis, the distributor channel. <laughs> yeah. And a distributor certainly does not provide call reports to a supplier. A distributor, unless there's some very unusual arrangement, does not guarantee a certain level of sales. And if there's another supplier that comes in and tickles the fancy of the distributor, then that distributor moves on to the next opportunity. So yeah. <laughs> I see a lot in common between how distributors go to market and how the multi-line salespeople go yeah. to market as it relates to well, suppliers. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you where a lot of the angst comes from. In the relationship between a supplier and a multi-line rep mm. is you know, supplier owners 
typically, not, and I'm going to generalize and say that the largest of suppliers in our industry, for the most part, have factory representation. Yeah. But so you're talking about medium-sized to smaller suppliers, and those are oftentimes run by an entrepreneur, a family business, those kinds of things. And you know, the angst comes in where that owner wants to treat multi-line reps as employee reps mm. and dictate to them and handle them in that way and the multi-line rep you know will resist that mm. and want to and demand kind of their independence and decision making and things so that's where some of the angst comes in with, with the smaller to medium suppliers yeah so you've laid out for us dan the pros and cons in terms of how suppliers can choose between a factory direct sales force or a multi-line agency have things changed in the last 20 years in your time in this industry? Like, are you seeing a, a move away from multi-lines or compared to when you first started or a move away from factory direct reps? Like, what are the trends you're seeing today? You know, I, I, I'm not going to say that I, I see a trend away from multi-line reps per se. I will say that I think that the climate and the landscape it's more difficult sledding out there than it was 20 years ago when I began. And so, mm -hmm. so some of the changes are due to mergers and acquisitions is one of the big ones, right? Yeah. So you have suppliers, large suppliers gobbling up medium-sized suppliers, and that medium-sized supplier was a potential candidate to be represented by a multi-line rep. That, that entity no longer is, exists. Yep. And so I, I, I think that pace has quickened over the last five to eight years. So there's a lot more of that than was going on 20 years ago. There's a lot more multi-line reps in general out in the field, and so there's more people looking for maybe fewer potential lines, let's say. And then the third area, I'm, I'm, I've noticed, um, you know, it's more uh, sort of anecdotal, but, you know, it seems to me that some suppliers who I would have categorized years ago as good candidates to use multi-line reps are using factory reps. I guess I'm saying sort of second-tier suppliers. No, no disrespect intended. I just mean size-wise. Yep. You know, sort of not the largest of suppliers, but just that next tier down. That you know, and so I, I've seen that trend too. So those three things in concert, you know, really do paint a more difficult landscape. I think in in trying to pick up new lines for all multi-line reps at this point. So yeah, there has been some changes over the last. 20 years. Speaking of 20 years, I, and I know you've been in the industry for more than 20 years, you know, it's been coming up to almost three decades, if you can imagine. <laughs> knowing no. what you, this is always one of my favorite questions, knowing what you know now, Dan, you're sitting in the industry, you've been here for, you know, several decades, you've got great respect amongst your colleagues and peers. If you were 21, knowing what you know now, as an enterprising, personable salesperson, okay, coming into the industry, would you become a distributor? Would you become a multi-line rep? Or would you become a factory rep on the supplier side? Well, you left out, would you want to start a supplier line, you know, oh. like you're my own little company like there you go. that, which probably would be my choice out of right. all, all four of them, yep. as it turns out. But out of the, the three you've given me, I mean, I, I think it depends on a it's a personality thing. Yeah. I remember when I was trying to hire a sub rep for my company, you know, to carry my lines. I was I was shocked at the lack of entrepreneurial spirit I came across. Yeah. And that was the one thing that stood out for me. This was going back now fifteen years when I was first hiring somebody. 
And, you know, I'd go up to these factory reps who I really liked and respected and they had great line, you know, they were repping great companies and I'd say, hey, I got a chance for you here to carve your own destiny and, and make really good commissions and, you know, do your own thing. And, you know, they'd look at me like, wait, who pays you? You know, like, uh, how's that work? You know, they just, you know, were, I guess, comfortable in mm -hmm. the salary thing and then the bonus, you know, salary with bonus combination. You know, and I came to realize that's the way some people are, you know. So to answer your question, I, I really think, you know, you're asking me what I would do. I would probably like to have a little supplier business myself. That's probably what I would like to do. But, but I think it's a different answer for everybody as they come into the market. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know whether I could pick one or the other as a 21-year-old. I was just kind of... He just wanted to get a paycheck at the time. Well, I was thrust into the multi-line rep thing, so, I mean, I was I started right away with the, you know, the commissions and all that, but um, that's how it goes, so, yeah. You know, I, I just picked up on something you said, and you used the word entrepreneurial spirit, or in your sense, it was actually the lack of entrepreneurial spirit, and you used another adjective, comfortable, as well. And this is a 30,000-foot view kind of question, Dan, but I think that you're well qualified to answer it given your time in the industry. Do you think as an industry, we are as entrepreneurial as we could be in terms of desire to innovate, desire to grow, or are we an industry that's largely comfortable in terms of where we're at? Wow, that's a cool question. Does that represent I, a problem? I would, uh, yeah. I would say I think a lot of the distributors are comfortable due to circumstance, meaning you know, not enough time in the day to be as entrepreneurial as they'd like, to be as creative as they'd like. You know, they're answering phones, they're putting out little fires and, you know, that kind of a thing. You know, look, there's people that break those rules all the time, you know, here and there. You find people that don't fit that mold on the distributor side for sure. I think I'm talking to two of them, frankly, but, you know, on the supplier side, I think it it's easier to find people that have that entrepreneurial spirit that are trying to always develop the next new product or always keeping an eye out on the market, what's hot at retail, how can we make it work in our marketplace. I, I don't know, I just think the supplier side lends itself a little more easily to the entrepreneurial side. Now, from the rep point of view, which is kind of the, the focus of our conversation, I don't think there's any question in my mind that's one of the strongest things about multi-lines yep. is that you are talking to an entrepreneur, basically. And so when they walk into a distributor's office, they really do kind of relate to a lot of the P&L issues that distributors face. And I'm not 100% sure that the factory reps have had that type of experience, mm. you know, and, and really have walked in those shoes. So, yeah, just to bring it back to kind of our conversation about representation. I'm going to get back into the multi-line factory to rep question in just a sec. I think we're going down an interesting path here with regard to the makeup of the industry, the personalities in this industry, and also the future of the industry. One thing that we've talked a lot about on this podcast is the impact of technology and the impact of what's happening online and the impact of what's happening with companies outside of our industry. And one of them is specifically Amazon. You look out five, 10 years from now, again, given your perspective as someone who spent most of his time as a multi-line, given that we've established that there is a certain degree of comfort and maybe a certain lack of entrepreneurial spirit, at least in some parts of this industry. Does that lend itself for a problem 
when Amazon decides they want to come knocking on the door in five years and they've really perfected how to order promotional products and customize products? Like, is that going to be our undoing or should we not be worried about that? Well, I think somewhere in between. I definitely think it has the potential to be very disrupting to some of the models that we have in place. But having said that, maybe this is a little old school in me, but I really believe that there is always going to be a spot for personal interaction. That may be via Skype or email or some other form of communication. I don't mean that you necessarily have to physically be in the room with somebody, but the idea of solving marketing problems by the use of imprinted merchandise, I mean, that's a separate discussion than I need, you know, 500 white coffee cups and I need them as cheap as I can possibly get them, you know, so, so, you know, concern, yes, but I don't think it really spells the end of, you know, the channel as we know it. Well, and I would tend to agree with you. I mean, I would hope that we don't listen back to this podcast in five years and all cry, <laughs> like I'm sure travel agencies might have cried before Expedia uh, <laughs> came, came knocking. Yeah, right. But I do think you, and, and I speak from perspective, given some distributor experience, that I, I really feel where things are going in the industry is that you've got a big part and certainly a growing part of the industry that is going online with the four imprints and the e-promos and the ink heads of the world all doing fine job there on the transaction side of the sale. And then I really feel that you've almost got this other side of the industry that is not really promotional products. It's more like agencies or more marketing solutions type people that, yes, they've got stuff in common with their online brethren, so to speak, but I I really feel that those two industries are really going to separate in the next five or 10 years. And if they don't, I I think that's where we're going to have the trouble. I think that's where companies like Right Sleeve or Brand Fuel, just speaking, the two guys are on the call here. We've got a choice. We've got a choice to either go fully online and go e-commerce and go head-to-head with the people just mentioned, or we continue what it is that we're really good at and focus in on that agency side and really focus on inspiring customers to find the right marketing solutions as opposed to 500 coffee cups for 99 cents. I think that's a fascinating take on it. It wouldn't shock me at all if it really turned out in those terms, which is to say sort of within the, the distributor model, there's you know, there's just a clean distinction between online and what do we want to call you guys? Real? I don't know. You know, real people versus online. I mean, I think we could end up right there. And, uh, you know, it kind of is trending that way. I think you're right. I, I would tend to agree exactly with that assessment. Well, and, and I think that the idea of an agency putting their head in the sand and saying, all right, well, we're just going to be creative and not engage and embrace technology is ridiculous. I think that there are tons and tons of amazing opportunities to get involved in the technology front. They don't necessarily need to all be e-commerce related, but there's so many fascinating marketing tactics that you can wrap your arms around from a technology perspective. Anyways, I want to shift gears here a bit, Dan, and I mentioned towards the end of my introduction, I kind of dropped a bit of a bomb in suggesting that you have now moved on from the multi-line world. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. So of course, in December, it was made official that you joined Stromberg brand. Of course, the umbrella company has been around for, you know, since the 1940s and now you're heading up their sales channel. So congratulations on that. Thank you. So I want to get inside your head a little bit. 
What made you make the decision to move from being a multi-line business owner to going to work factory side? Okay. Well, you know, really there's, I mean, there's a lot of reasons. There was probably a dozen reasons altogether. Some personal, probably half of those sort of from a personal perspective and the other half specifically from a business perspective. But the the impetus, the thing that kind of really kicked me in the butt was when we lost our contract to represent a company called Crown Products, okay. who's a, a great supplier of uh, inexpensive items based in uh, in Alabama. They're uh, you know they've been I've been with them for almost 14 years as an independent multi-line rep, and they were our lead line, and they were purchased. This was one of those merger and acquisition stories we were talking about 10 minutes ago. So they were purchased about six years ago with uh, the new management really not hiding the fact that they were going to move this model toward factory reps. And, you know, I mean, to an extent, I felt like we were playing with house money from that point on, and yeah. uh, we, we knew this was inevitable. And uh, we, we got word in September that this was going to happen, and it really... It allowed me to kind of just step back and say, you know, from like a 35,000-foot view and say, you know, wh what do I want to do for the rest of my career type thing? And do I want to stay the course here? Do I want to change? And now we're getting to some of the personal things that, you know, came into play. You know, my, my kids are finishing college, and I'm kind of in a different spot now in my life and, yeah. and all those things. So I just said, you know, what do I want to do? And really, uh, you know, the work that I want to do is what I found really at Stromberg. And, you know, it's just getting started. And so I'm learning uh, at the beginning here. I've got a lot to learn, frankly. But, um, you know, I, I wanted to be involved in the conversation with regard to product development and yep. strategy and all those kinds of things that you could touch upon Yep. As an independent multi-line rep, you know, once a year at a sales meeting or a national trade show, you know, you get the ear of the owner or the, you know, and say, hey, you know, I got a great idea for this, that, or the other thing, and you know, it may or may not be taken into consideration. Right. It may or may not be put into practice and all that. I just wanted, I want to put my stamp on something. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I began looking around and and more quickly than I I thought, uh, this opportunity was presented, and you know, I jumped at it. So tell me a little bit about the makeup at Stromberg right now. Are you going to be responsible for building out and expanding the existing sales team? Or is it multi-lines that represent Stromberg right now? Like, Tell me a little bit about what you okay. see the next 90 days looking like for you as you step into this role. Yep. Okay. So they have a multi-line rep force. I would say that it does not cover quite the entire United States. So there are some holes throughout it. And really what I'm going to be doing is traveling with those reps and kind of making an analysis of each of the territories and how we fit into those territories, how we fit into those reps' portfolio of lines, if you will, kind of strategize as to what geographical regions we need help in or, you know, maybe we need representation somewhere we don't have. So... Those are the kind of issues as far as our representation is concerned. I'm going to be just kind of doing a lot of analysis over the first 6 to 12 months and figuring right. out how best to put that together. Right. My inclination is to stay with the multi-line rep groups right now right. You know, and make that work because I know we've got some good people out on the, on the road. Right. So, Dan, are you comfortably sharing your age with the Promo Kitchen community? <laughs> I'm 51 years old. 
Wow. I thought you were wow. like 38. What do you mean? What's wow? I thought you were 38. 51. <laughs> I'm 51. Born in 63. Wow. That, that's great. So the reason I ask you that question yeah. is... To embarrass me. No, not to embarrass you. Actually, to, to sort oh. of give you some kudos, I, I will say. <laughs> okay. You know, what I'm getting at here is that you're at the stage where you're in a comfortable spot in the industry, right? You're 51. You could continue on for the next 15, 10, 15 years, just kind of doing the same thing you're doing right now, and you'd be likely just fine. What advice do you have for people that are in the same age and stage as you are that are looking at making a change? Like, what are some of the things, what are some of the pieces of advice you could give for that person who knows they want to make a change, but they're a little bit nervous or like, ah, I don't know, my kids are still, you know, they're, they might be coming back home and I've still got financial responsibilities, blah, 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 all that stuff. What advice would you give them to just say, you know what, you can do it? Wow. You know, that's, that's a loaded question because I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm, necessarily in a position to, to give advice to anybody because everybody's situation is, is so different. You know, from my, I, I really, I will speak from my own perspective and yeah. hopefully that kind of yeah, what you steps know, helps, you helps other people to sort of see how I looked at it and, and really what it boiled down to for me, again, there were many, many issues, but as far as that's concerned, I was a little bored with the process of what I was doing, and yeah. I was really seeking out something a little more involved, a little more sophisticated, maybe a little more, I don't know, intellectual, where I could take something and make it my own, put my own stamp on it, and move forward that way. Yeah. You know, also, from a personal perspective, I tried to picture myself as a, I don't know, 63 or 64-year-old multi-line rep doing the exact same thing in another, you know, 12, 13, 14 years. And I wasn't crazy about what that looked like. Yeah. And so it, it was almost like a signal, you know, the uh, losing the crown products contract. I was like, somebody's trying to tell me something is kind of how I looked at it. And so I did look at it and uh, this is where I ended up. So, you know, I think everybody's circumstances are different. So I'm not going to necessarily offer specific advice, but I'm going to tell you that's that's where my head was at. I'm someone who has got, a, I think, a bias towards change, and change is often scary, but I remain very impressed with other people who are comfortable getting outside their comfort zone. <laughs> and I can absolutely see I'm 40, and I too get comfortable and you know, know that change is tough at times. But I think that whenever you make that change and you kind of go out and, and you try something different, you expose yourself to risk. But I think oftentimes is a great reward if you stick with it. So yeah. um, kudos no, to I'm, you. And I'm really, really, really pumped up about you know, making this move. I, I was telling, who was I telling yesterday? I was like, I've never gotten a paycheck. Yeah. Okay, I'm 51 years old. I've literally only worked on commission my entire life after college. You know? yeah. So I've, I've never worked for anybody. I've never been an employee. And so there are so many firsts for me in this whole process. It's great. I mean, it's really, I'm like, a, you know, I'm like born again here. I'm just, everything's new. Everything's exciting. And, uh, you know, it's all in front of me. I mean, I haven't been this kind of invigorated since, really, since I started my own company, you know, back in 92. Yeah. I know Danny is uh, struggling a little bit, not feeling super well, but just to bring him out into the interview here, Danny, I know that you know you, you and Robert have been running Brand Fuel for quite some time and have continued to grow it into a very successful distributorship, but I, I see your eyes light up when you talk about Band Together. 
And, you know, in terms of that being another challenge that you took on, I think it's so super exciting. So I don't know, Danny, if you're in a position to talk a little bit about, you know, the process that you went through when you started to look into other opportunities and how you landed at Band Together. Yeah, it's two different worlds. It really is. I mean, so I think it's important to recognize that I think most people want to do something good in their lives. They want to do something meaningful. We want to do something with discretionary effort. And so, Dan, you've gone through this process at 51 I'm sort of like you. I'm younger, but, you know, I've worked for myself all these years. And, you know, what would it be like to work for somebody else? Could I do that? It'd have to be the right fit. And so you, you have stumbled into something that sounds like a really fantastic opportunity, but it's a big change for you. I think the band together thing for me is it's what you read about on every freaking blog post that's out there is find something that you really enjoy and you're passionate about and do it. And that may mean taking a, a, a nonprofit that, you know, in the midst of chaos and clarity that, that happened that day in 9-11 where we created this thing and it was just in its infancy to try and build it in whatever direction we dreamt. Or if it's jumping into a 50-plus-year-old brand, you know, a Stromberg, and looking at what they've done successfully but realizing that the marketplace has changed and that as a brand they have to evolve as well. And so I think about all these things, brand fuel, you know, right sleeve. Uh, Mark, you've jumped in and started your own software company with Common Skew. It's very impressive. Dan, you, you've left all that you know that you've built to start anew. I feel like all those things, you know, band together included, it feels like to me it's really about aligning with purpose, personal purpose, finding the thing that you enjoy that you really want to do and, and do it with people you want to enjoy doing it with. And, and my guess is, you know, where you've run your business, Dan, for so long on your own, you probably have a lot of autonomy uh, in this new position, and that's got to be really exciting for you. As long as they give you a budget and they trust you, uh, you're going to have to earn your colors in the business. Obviously, it, it should be a fantastic ride for you. But I think all of this just comes down to having that entrepreneurial spirit and, and seizing the bull by the horn, so to speak, and, and trying some new things and falling forward and and convincing these older brands, I think, that it's time for a change and, and that you can help. Yeah. Danny, you set that up nicely with, you know, talking about Band Together and nonprofit and more specifically music industry. And I want to take a bit of a left turn here, but I know that I've got two really smart guys that know a lot about music and disruption and innovation. And I just am pulling up my Facebook feed, Dan, and I know that you had posted a couple of days ago on Facebook this really great article, I think, in The Guardian. We can put this yeah. in the show notes on promokitchen.com. But the, the long story short is it's a great article about the well-known producer Steve Albini and his defense of the music industry in terms of how music industry is actually in a better spot now than it's ever been despite all the, you know, the concerns that the labels have put forward. So first of all, that was a really interesting article, and I think everyone who's listening to this should read it. But I often look to other industries and try to see parallels between where they are and where we are in the promotional products industry. Do you see parallels between what's happening in music today and what we see in the promotional products industry today? Well, I, I think you you have to first look right at technology. I mean, yep. and, and that's what's really driving this whole change in, in music. And as you alluded to 10 minutes ago, it's 
kind of driving a lot of the changes here in our industry as well. I mean, it's it's the big 800-pound gorilla in every room in every industry, and it's just got to be addressed. It's got to be embraced, and it's got to be utilized, and there's just no two ways about it. So, you know, you, you mentioned something earlier about, you know, an old established brand having to come to grips with the new technologies and stuff, and, and that's exactly right. That's that's what I hope to accomplish here is to bring them into the 21st century in the best way I know how and uh, utilize those technologies. So, yeah, no, I think there there's a couple parallels there, and you're going to have the old guard in the uh, yep. promotional products industry kind of fighting that, and you have that in the music industry as well, you know, fighting the new, uh, the new paradigm. But I don't think it's going away. And I, I think it's it's you gotta you gotta roll with it is, yeah. is the way I'd put it. You see anything different, Danny? Yeah, that post was a really good one. You had a lot of comments, and and it was some of the longest written comments. Go to Dan's Facebook page if you want to check it out. But you know the comparison mark that you asked about. I said something about that in my response to your post, Dan. It said rock and roll as a cultural phenomenon is dead. Most kids today are, are more identified with the technology they possess versus the bands that they're listening to or the yeah. albums that they own, if they even have albums, right? And that doesn't mean that music's dead or dying. It only means that really unique and talented artists have to figure out a way to, one, differentiate, and two, you have to effectively monetize that. So my point was that's exactly like the promotional products industry in so many ways. Mm. It really feels like suppliers need to differentiate, distributors need to differentiate. How do they monetize this? And, and there's all kinds of great things that are happening, but the old guard is falling, and there's a lot of mergers and acquisitions. There's issues in IP and, and all the things that we're, we're addressing with respect to safety and compliance, and, and so the supply chains are changing, and, and Dan's big change here is, is sort of a result of that. You know, I think in a way you've made a, a very, very smart um, calculated move to make a big change in your life, and I think everybody's got to do that. Yeah, you, you know, j just one quick point on this music thing, and then Danny, or shift gears, and you can ask. I think what might be our last question. When you think about the democratization of music, or at least the ability to record music now is basically next to nothing to publish and record music. You know, you can now do that very, very inexpensively, where you couldn't have done that twenty, thirty years ago, and I think that if you make the parallel to the promotional products industry is that if you're small, innovative, and entrepreneurial in this industry, using technology, using social media, and just using, you know, sort of your personality, you can really carve out a really interesting niche or niche, depends on how you want to pronounce it. So I think it's like the music industry. It's very exciting for those entrepreneurially minded smaller companies that can now come in and really make an impact. Whereas I started in the industry in the late 90s, it was 1997, 1998, when I first got into the industry, kind of felt like even though I was small and starting out with nothing, I felt like even at that time, there were a lot of these bigger players that I was intimidated by. And I was like, oh gosh, they got their catalogs and they've got more money than me. And I quickly found that the advantage those bigger guys had started to crumble as I started to move on in business. And a lot of that was related to technology and the advent of social media and how that gave a smaller player like myself the ability to grow without having to have as much capital as those bigger guys. So I, I don't know yeah. if, if there's a, an analogy there, but I just think it's really, really exciting for the smaller guy now than it was, say, 30 years ago. Yeah, I think it levels the playing field in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. Danny? 
So shift gears again, Dan, got a question for you. This is a, a little bit of a, a deeper sort of outside of the realm of what we've been talking about question. But you've been in and out of a, a whole lot of distributor offices through the years, and you've talked to a lot of salespeople. And my business partner and I sort of came wind of something a, a couple of years ago that was happening. It's sort of a dirty little secret, I guess, on the supplier side where some of the, the bigger distributors were paying supplier reps to essentially recruit other salespeople to come to their businesses. So this would be like if you came into my office and you talked to one of my salespeople and, and you sent them to a different distributor and got paid for that. Right. So my business partner, Robert, wrote this article on Promo Kitchen called Pork Chops and Promos Debating Supplier Referral Fees. So I think we're all going to admit that it's happened or maybe is happening. But I wanted to just ask you this idea, we're talking a lot about disruption and, and what's changing. Are the supplier fees just another obstacle that we have to sort of figure out that makes us work harder as distributors to hone our value proposition, retain these people, or is it crossing the line? And I know you responded to this thing a long time ago, so I want to bring it up again because I thought your response was really good. Are we breaking the line? Is it not appropriate? Is it not professional? Are we totally breaking down the respect of our industry by the way it's been built and sustained for so long? And so this change has happened Maybe it's, it's a disruption, it's just a new way to approach hiring and re recruiting people, or is it something that really we, we need to steer clear of and we need to send a clear message in some way? I don't think, personally, my own personal take on it is, you know, I don't think we need, you know, legislation or anything, you know, even, even inter-industry regulation of any kind to prevent it. You know, I think you've got your finger on the pulse, Danny, and it basically has to be more about the culture that you create, uh, you meaning you know, any number of distributors that, you know, create a workplace environment that people want to be a part of, and I, I really think that it really mitigates the fear a lot. I, I don't think it's extensive, this practice. I, it is out there. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's exactly commonplace, but it's not uncommon either, right? So it's kind of somewhere in between. I, I just think that it's important to note that it's not necessarily malicious when a multi-line rep even helps a disgruntled salesperson make a move. I mean, it's almost like, you know, I've been calling on somebody for, you know, eight years, ten years, and they're friends of mine, and they, they confide in me that they're unhappy about something. Can you help me, you know? And, uh, yeah, I actually can help you. So that's kind of more how it happens in my own personal experience than, uh, you know, than the, the paying of the fees. I have been, I have been approached with that, and uh, well, I, I can tell you I've never taken a fee. But I have heard about it, and people have approached me with it. So, you know, I don't think it's a huge problem, but I do think it says a lot about the person. It says more about the person offering the money than it does about the uh, company that they're trying to uh, raid, as it were. So I, I think, you know, you got to be careful when you offer these fees to people. How, do, how does that represent your own company? You know that you're not attracting quality talent. You got to pay for it. So you know you got to you got to take that into consideration as well. But as I said, m most of it is not really done in a malicious fashion. It's really done in kind of a friendly fashion. And and I'd like them to try to help me out. At, you know, if I ever was in need. So it's it's more along those lines as I as I see the issue. Mark, have you have you come across some of that? I think you see it happening. It's not surprising that it happens. I mean, it's a small industry. I think that if you were to survey distributors and ask them to list some of their 
top challenges that they have, I would not be surprised if most of them said in their top three that attracting sales talent is among one of their top problems. So if that's the case, then mm-hmm. most business owners are going to try to solve that problem. And yep. one of the ways that you are going to go and solve that problem is going to be, well, conceivably <laughs> speaking to people in the industry to say, hey, I'm looking to, I'm looking to hire. Who do you know? And so I, I think I agree with you, Dan, that uh, it, it probably starts off in a good place. Like, hey, I've got this problem. I need to solve the problem, so let's go ahead with it. I think it, it then starts to enter a little bit of a fuzzy area when you set up suppliers or maybe put people in an awkward spot where they end up be, not only becoming your supplier, but then also a recruiter. I think that that's an, a tough position to put a supplier in. So that, that's just my personal view. So I think uh, I don't know that I personally love that idea of incenting anyone really outside of your company. I don't think there's, so what I mean by that, I don't think there's anything wrong if you incent people in your company to say, hey, if you know people, whether they're in the industry or not, to attract them to your company, I think that's fair game. But I think to incent a supplier, uh, I I don't know. It's not something I would personally do. So I don't want to make a judgment against it, but not for me. Yeah. Okay. Dan, what haven't we asked you? What haven't we asked you? We've got time for one more question or comment wow. from you. What's something kind of uncomfortable or a bit of a white elephant that we haven't addressed right now? And, and you don't have to say anything, of course, but I, I wanted to give you the last word. Wow. Yeah, I wish I had been prepared for that kind of a question. I'm not, I'm not... <laughs> but we don't do that here. <laughs> no, I know. I guess you don't. Okay, it's part of the fun, as it were. Yeah, but... Uh, this will be the last you know, time you come on the I show. Think, <laughs> I don't know. Well, we had, I think we had a pretty good conversation about dialing it all the way back to, you know, representation and all that. I think I think I'll leave it with, with this kind of a message, which is to say, well, the one thing you didn't ask me is, you know, are, is multi-line reps... Is that ever going to go away? Yeah, I, sure. I really, you know, so we can talk about that for two seconds. But, I mean, I, as long as there are medium-sized, smaller suppliers uh, continually in, in our channel, I think there's always going to be a place for, you know, kind of the high exposure, low cost that multi-line reps yep. present. Yep. You know, but there's always a, a place when you uh, get to a certain sales level that, Factory reps do make more business sense. There is, you know, really no question in my mind. And so I think the message I want to say is there's there's a place for both models for sure. Yeah, I, I think as you say, it depends on what kind of supplier you are. It depends on what your go-to-market strategy is. And it, so I think that there's health in both models. And it, it's nice to be able to have your perspective because, of course, <laughs> you've been a multi-line for so many years. But now, of course, you switched over into the factory side. So you're kind of the perfect person to answer that question. So. It's a, it's a good balanced answer. So Dan, Danny, so much fun. Thank you for your time, your support, your friendship. And we're really looking forward to uh, getting this uh, podcast out into the hands of uh, our listeners and wish you all the very best in your new role and in 2015. Well, I appreciate that, Mark and Danny, and I just want to say support the Promo Kitchen. I love the work that you guys are doing, whether it's just creating great, compelling, thought-provoking content or mentoring people or just getting, you know, like-minded people together at events. All of it's good. All of it's valuable. I support it wholeheartedly, and I, I really do appreciate the efforts you guys make at the Promo Kitchen. Well, thanks, Dan. You have a wonderful year, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, guys.